0: Hello everyone and welcome to the Institute for Government. I'm Emma Norris, the Deputy Director here. Um, Today we are launching IFG's Annual Performance Tracker, which we produce in partnership with the Chartered Institute of Public Finance and Accountancy. Performance Tracker tracks the performance of public services right across the piece. Um, We know that public services have been hit incredibly hard by the pandemic, but the pandemic merely exacerbated existing performance problems and pressures on staff. High inflation, widespread strikes um, have since caused even more disruption. We've got NHS waiting lists at an all-time high, prisons that are bursting at the seams, and staffing crises right across services. We've also got widening inequalities in schools. And that's all happening in a context where we're being told that there is no money to spend, so things will possibly get worse. So ahead of the autumn statement, uh, we're going to be talking about just how bad public service performance is how the government can recruit and retain sufficient staff to start improving that performance, and where we think the key challenges in public services lie ahead of the general election that we're expecting either next year or very early in 2025. Delighted to have a fantastic um, panel uh, with me today to talk about it. We're going to have opening remarks from Geoffrey Matsu, who's the Chief Economist um, at SIPFA, sitting on the front row. We've got Nick Davies, who's the Programme Director for Public Services here at the Institute. He'll be presenting the findings from Performance Tracker, so you all have a flavour of what the report says. And then we're going to have responses from Baroness Estelle Morris, who's the Chair of the Lords Public Services Committee, and we will have a response from Stephen Bush, who's an associate editor of the um, FT and who is en route and will join us uh, shortly. Okay, Geoffrey, I'm going to come to you for a few opening mar- remarks before we, uh, before we get into the detail.
1: Hi, good afternoon, everyone. And SIF is very pleased to be working with uh, the IFG for the eighth year in producing what we think is a very critical component of public policy. From SIPFA's perspective, uh, the managing of public finances is critical to achieving better outcomes across uh, not just the nine services that the report covers, but also across the wider realm of of, um, public spending. I just want to quickly reflect on three areas of why SIPFA finds important the tracking of performance. And that's around um, a whole systems approach that government should constantly be reminded that it should be taking and that internally it should be um, developing structures to pursue. And that whole system approach really just means the coordination and integration of activities across public bodies. Um, And through that, we can get uh, better accountability in public spending. The second area is around monitoring and evaluation, um, we really need to uh, focus on the big stuff um, and make sure that we're not being distracted by small sums of money or small little projects here and there. And so through monitoring and evaluation, making sure that uh, timely data is being collected and that it's being used um, in an effective way to monitor and evaluate the delivery of, of, of programs across government is really important and what I think Performance Tracker aims to do. And third but not least is around financial resilience and making sure that um, government not just at a central level, but at a local level as well, has the uh, sort of the musculature framework to deliver uh, on its remit. So for local government, making sure that neighborhood services are delivered in a safe and effective way to the people that rely on public services, which are often in uh, places that have uh, a greater need. And just a quick reflection on that financial resilience element from a local government perspective is the uh, recent um, crises that we've been seeing over the past few years in local government with councils, both big and small, Um, really starting to fail. And this is hopefully not the beginning of a trend. Um, And we really want to make sure that through reports such as Performance Tracker, um, there is sort of the insights through data uh, to see how government at whatever tiers can um, sort of avert crises um, through developing that sort of specialist knowledge and skills that are needed to uh, better and more effectively use public monies. So with that, I look forward to the discussion. Thank you very much.
0: Brilliant. Thank you, Geoffrey. It's worth me saying now that we'll, of course, be holding time for questions um, from the audience at the end. For people who are watching along online, you can start submitting questions via Slido now, so please do go ahead. Um, Nick, over to you.
2: Thank you. I'm going to... um, briefly run through some of the current performance issues facing public services, uh, look at some of the causes of those performance issues, then the implications of future spending plans uh, for performance, and then finish with a quick look at some recommendations. Uh, It's necessarily going to be a bit of a whistle-stop tour, uh, condensing as it does a 300-page report into a handful of slides, but hopefully there'll be plenty of time for questions afterwards. So uh, this first shot shows the performance of public services. The first column is the nine services that we look at. Uh, The middle column is the performance of those services on the eve of the pandemic uh, versus 2009-10, a decade earlier. Uh, And as you can see, apart from schools, all services were performing worse on the eve of the pandemic than they had been in 2009-10, with the biggest falls in performance uh, seen in hospitals and in prisons. Uh, The final column shows how those services are performing now compared to the already disappointing performance levels on the eve of the pandemic and again unfortunately in almost all cases the situation has got worse, in some cases substantially, um, with again hospitals uh, seeing the biggest uh, decline alongside criminal courts where in both cases uh, waiting times and waiting lists uh, have increased substantially. Clearly the pandemic was a major shock to public services and heavily disrupted uh, delivery, and they are partly recovering from that. But one of the key findings of this year's report is that actually those performance uh, problems have deeper roots and lie in decisions taken over, in some cases, many decades by multiple administrations, particularly in relation to public sector workforces and capital spending. So on workforces, uh, public sector pay freezes at the beginning of the last decade followed by below inflation pay increases had fueled increased dissatisfaction with pay among public service workforces uh, that in the last year erupted uh, amid particularly high levels of inflation uh, with the most widespread uh, public sector strikes that we've seen uh, for several decades, which is what this chart shows, the cumulative working days lost to public sector strikes. The effectiveness of public services has been further weakened by the loss of experienced staff who tend to be uh, more effective uh, than new recruits, but new recruits are making up now a much larger proportion of public sector workforces. Uh, and so this chart shows uh, prisons where it's um, particularly stark. And as you can see, uh, staff with less than five years experience uh, in 0910 accounted for only a fifth of the workforce, but now it's around half of the workforce, whereas the numbers of those with more than 10 years of experience have fallen substantially. And that makes it much harder to deliver those services effectively. Uh, On capital, the UK has consistently uh, invested less in public services uh, than other wealthy nations. So taking uh, health, for an example, uh, what this chart shows is that since 1970, there have only been two years when the UK has invested more than the OECD Average. Uh, and the result of that is that we, for example, uh, have only half the number of CT scanners per capita as uh, the OECD average. But even compared to that low base, the last decade saw particularly deep cuts uh, to public uh, sector capital spending uh, so this chart shows the kind of the five services uh, the five departments that oversee the services covered in our report uh, the worst hit of those was uh, the ministry of justice where average annual spending on capital was less than half of what it was in 07 uh, 08 but even relatively protected departments like dhsc still saw cuts of around 10% and the The impact of this is that public sector staff find it far harder to do their jobs if they're working in crumbling buildings, in some cases quite literally, working on outdated IT and without access to the latest equipment. While additional funding has been provided for some services, our assessment is that the tightness of spending plans for the rest of this Parliament means that most services will not be able to return to pre-pandemic performance levels by April 2025. And the situation in the next spending review period uh, is currently even tighter. So the Government's current spending plans from 25-26 onwards, which uh, the Labour Party has also signed up to, uh, suggest a 1% um, average real-term increase in spending. However, if you take account of existing commitments on defence, on foreign aid, and the amount of money that would be required to deliver the NHS long-term workforce plan, that would see cuts of 1.2% to unprotected areas of public spending on average per year over that spending review period. And what this chart shows is how those spending changes compare to how demand is projected to increase over that period. Uh, And as you can see, particularly in the criminal justice sector, demand will outpace uh, funding quite substantially. And therefore, in fact, apart from children's social care, we think all of the services we cover will be performing worse in 2027-28 than they were on the eve of the pandemic. So what can be done about this? As I said, in many cases these are due to decisions that have taken place over decades and it's certainly going to take more than one parliament to fix it. But we do think that improvements can be made. First, we would like to see a multi-year budget for each public service that is set at a sustainable level so that services can deliver a kind of politically acceptable level of performance without the constant need for emergency funding top-ups that we've seen in recent years, which is a far less efficient way of spending public money. Secondly, we need a long-term capital programme that addresses the historic and comparative uh, under-investment in public sector buildings, equipment, and IT. Third, we need a stable long-term policy agenda with clear political and official leadership, which addresses the unsustainable levels of churn among ministers, officials, and policy. Uh, And finally, we need an improved approach to setting pay, uh, workforce planning, and enhancing workforce uh, conditions to reset the relationship with public sector staff and help to address some of the persistent recruitment and retention problems across public services. Thank you.
0: Thank you, Nick. Estelle, Nick's painted in that presentation a picture where every service is performing worse on the eve of the pandemic than it was. In 2009-10, we've seen a huge level of of churn, uh, both at at a ministerial and official level, losing our most experienced staff and capital investment levels that are lower than um, many of our counterparts overseas. What are your reflections, having heard, that that outlook?
3: Well, it's not great news, and um, (laughs) you did give us a lot to be optimistic about, really, in that they are entrenched problems. What I wanted to do was just... I'm not an economist, so not respond to the economy, but just a few observations on... The statistics and then perhaps a little bit on workforce but i think one of the most important points was that this didn't happen by itself had there been investment before the pandemic it would have been bad but not as bad mm-hmm. and i think politically one of the problems is that politicians and i'm sure i did it in the past this selective use of a time frame i think causes huge problems in terms of their relationship With the people who deliver public services so in the area i know best which is education it might be true that spending now is higher than it's ever been but if you look at your graphs prior to that no one not any teacher i've met believes that to be the case and i think that's a real problem that sort of shared understanding of what the data is it doesn't make for good working relationships second thing was i think in the public services there's a real problem in differentiating activity from value. Um, we teach children. It doesn't mean they've learnt anything. It's just a, it's just a slight difference, but a lot of people that we've well, taught them, therefore they've learnt, and that is not an automatic connection. You can have a hospital appointment, but it doesn't mean that you've got any better. And I think we need to be even more fine-tuned mm-hmm. to how we get that value and activity. Just two or three more points on, on the data. Um, it's interesting this morning in the news that they're thinking of moving people uh, who've been on the waiting list for operation or for treatment for more than, I think it's 10 months, giving them a choice of another location. And that just brought home the variation within the service. So I think that there's a, there's a real importance in not looking at the figures and thinking, that's it all over. Mm-hmm. I do a lot of work in education in Birmingham. You've got Sutton Coldfield and we've got Nietzsche's and Ladywood in the centre of the city. They are are different worlds almost. So that variation within the system is important. And the last thing which you do stress, and I think is really important in the work that you do, it is the cumulative impact of one person suffering from a lot of underperforming public services. So I'm absolutely certain that part of the underperformance in schools is because of the underperformance of local authorities in social care, in housing, and because people are poor. And we know that, but I don't think we're, we're good at, cho- at, ch- at changing your statistics into, into anything that helps us with policy making. It's that joined up thing. And then I just wanted to run through some observations on workforce, if that, if that, if that was all right. We do need more resources, and there's not a magic um, bullet. To that I, I've certainly not got the answer to that, and there's times when I'm glad I'm not a minister any longer, and that's, that's probably one of them. But what I would say is resources by itself is never going to be enough, as the government and education this year will see. Put the money in, you don't get the effect and you don't change the mood. And if one thing that I think could be changed, has to be changed, as well as putting resources in, is the narrative. And that's what worries me most almost. The narrative, the shared narrative between policymakers and those who deliver public services has collapsed. There is no shared platform in which they have the same understanding of what the public service is about. And my own experience from being in government and from being a constituency MP was that what people most want is their problem solved. Second, if they can't have that, they want to understand why they've got a problem that can't be solved. And somehow there's got to be that narrative. There's got to be a trust from politicians to, um, to, to those who deliver public services that they understand where we've been, where we are, and where we might be going. And if any government comes in and just says, it's all going to be right in the next one year, that's not true. But if you can somehow change that narrative so that you bring the public servants with you, they know they're on a journey, they know the rough destination, and it might actually be quite exciting trying to get there, even if it's tough, I think that could make the biggest difference. And the reason I stress that is a new government has only got one chance to do that, one chance, and it's in that first week. Mm -hmm. If you lose that first chance of changing the narrative, I think you've had it. So where's the first um, question is also, well, how much resources are you going to put into? And you desperately need to. I would actually put what narrative you're going to say ahead of what resources. I think the resources follow the narrative because that, that builds up trust. And I think that people in the public services, don't join for the money, they don't join for the high salaries, they don't join because everyone's saying how brilliant they are, but they do join because the job's worth doing. And they are grown ups. They can be part of that narrative. They're bold enough and brave enough and experienced enough to share that story with them. And I think that politicians have to stop choosing a time frame that suits them and talk about that wider narrative. Just two or three more points. Public services, I think possibly more than any other sector of the economy, are a people business. They are hugely dependent on people and those relationships which can't appear in your statistics actually matter. So a teacher and a pupil, a doctor and a patient, a prison officer and a prisoner, they all are absolutely crucial. So just as where we've got a whole whole lot of government policies on investing in capital machinery in other sectors of the economy. We ought to have a similar approach to investing in what is essentially the machinery of public services which are public servants so where are the tax breaks for investing in training professional development for public services where are the lead tables for how much you've invested in leadership and the rest of it and i just don't think we have a mindset either in policymakers or in public servants themselves that say we are the machinery of what we do and what we do is crucial and the economy and the policy has got to make that happen. We know too many public servants who, when a cut is needed, they cut their own professional development first. It's like closing down your best machine. It's like switching the plug off at the machine that is doing the best work for you. And we've never got to that mindset. Two, I think with two more other the points, leadership matters. This probably isn't the case, but in the old days, when we used to look at what made teachers leave teaching, it was actually that the schools were badly led. And I sus- if a school was badly led, not that schools were badly led. If they didn't have a leader who they trusted, I think that's true. And my last point is this, that I, I do wonder how much the departments do on shared understanding of demographics and what that means for workforce reform. That's something you bring up. And I don't know a lot about that. I've not had a lot of discussions, which makes me wonder how much is done. And the other thing that I thought might go along with that is working patterns. They're changing, and we bemoan it rather than accept it. So you now say our teachers are leaving teaching. Well, to be honest, if they've done 15 years, I don't think that's bad these days. It's a tough job, and I think we might be able to argue that they might come back in 10, but they shouldn't be seen as a failure. And if young men and women want to go to Australia and New Zealand to be a doctor when they qualify, I don't particularly like the idea, but it's happening. So rather than just beating ourselves about the head about it, why don't we see that that's a new workforce pattern? If a lot of women now who are training in medicine are female, that might mean that more likely, might mean, might not mean that more likely to want to go part-time or take longer periods of maternity leave. And I'm not sure how much we've absorbed that new generation of working patterns and put that into it as well. So I think those
0: are the main points that I wanted to make in response to that, Nick. Thanks very much. Fantastic. Thank you very much, Estelle. I wanted to come back to um, your point on narrative. I thought this was really interesting, the idea that it's not just about data, it's not even just about money. It's about, exactly, it's about the story and the story that can be shared between um, politicians and people working um, on the front line of public services. And I suppose I wonder, looking at the picture that Nick has painted of public services that PT outlines... What do you think that narrative can look like in this context?
3: I think that narrative starts with those figures, to tell you the truth. Mm-hmm. Um, this is where we are. And politicians, if, once you're in government, you don't say that. If you're in opposition, you have a vested interest in saying how bad public services are. And that's a problem in terms of setting a tone within the public sector. Here in opposition, no matter which part of the IRO, we saying how bad, not how bad they are doing the job, but that's how they interpret it. It's how bad the public service is. And it's not only bad, but it's getting worse. Mm-hmm. And so when you become the government, you suddenly switch to say how good they are and how much they're improving. And that's not an adult, mm. adult conversation. And I think that's why I said, you've only got one chance to do it. And that's the point at which you're changing from saying how bad it is to how good it is. So I would say it's got to start with, how did we get to where we are? Mm-hmm. I think it's got to say, we're not going to get there, but this is where we'd like to be. And I think it's got to acknowledge some of the things that public servants find difficult that politicians will never admit to. And in my own area of education, that really is how the home and poverty and children going hungry affects what teachers can do in the classroom. And teachers know that, but they don't hear politicians saying it. And I think the same can be true for other services as well. They know it, but they don't hear it being said. So I think that's a degree of honesty. And then I think it is, it is by X we want to achieve. These are our priorities. How does that sound to you? And just go forward. And yes, there comes a time when you have to dig in deep and say, sorry, that's the way it's gonna be. And you have to push it and you have to drive it. But at least you've got them on your journey with them to begin with. Mm -hmm. So I think it's trying to set that as ever, that that different political narrative as well as the narrative for each public service. I
2: actually thought the um, the tone and some of the language that Keir Starmer used in his speech at conference was quite helpful on that in that he said, the situation is very bad, uh, yeah. but improvement is possible, but this is probably a 10 year process, which I think is a fairly realistic assessment of some of the problems we've seen. As you said, services are gonna be performing worse in many cases in 27, 28 than they were in 2009, 2010. And I think it's a multi-decade process to get here and it's a decade plus process to get out.
0: Estelle, I know it's, um as you say, uh, a decision that nobody wants, but I do have to ask about money. As Nick set out, the spending plans from April 25 onwards are so incredibly tight, um, and Labour are signed up to those as well. Uh, It's happening yeah. at a time that demand is increasing i mean how on earth do you go about squaring the tightness of those spending pounds with the state of public services i don't i see? think it
3: needs more money i mean mm-hmm. it's as simple as that it needs more yeah, it, it needs more money eventually but that's what happened in 97 when we came in we came in, in 97 committed to two years of the same budget and there was more money went into public services and considerably more money so i'm hugely confident in my uh, Labour colleagues at the Treasury, that there will be more money. I mean, if after five years, we'd not invested a penny extra than the profile that we'd have had under the Tories, I would be very disappointed. And the pick, pick up that capital, I think it's really important because in my mind, you know, you think sometimes in images rather than anything else. And I think we expect our public servants to work in really poor capital environments mm-hmm. in a way that does not happen in the private sector. And I think that that is now becoming an increasing gap. You know, just the quality of the classroom, the quality of the staff room, the quality of the hospitals compared to the quality of Amazon or Google. If you go into their headquarters down in Central London, mm-hmm. so I think all that spending does matter. I'm not an economist, but I know last time we had the Labour government, the capital exp- spending was really, really made a difference because it was part of that narrative that said we believe in you, things are going to change, and this is a sign of it. So I'm not, I'm not, I can't tell you the details, mm-hmm. but you know, I will converse at the next election as hard as I can because I believe we will spend more money mm-hmm. over the course of a parliament than the Tories will. Okay.
0: Stephen, thanks for joining us. Giving you a couple of seconds to uh, collect us, I'm gonna come straight to you. You might have picked up that Estelle was saying she does expect a Labour um, government to spend more money. Do you think whoever forms the next government is going to raise taxes to increase public spending?
4: Well, I think they're going to have to. I'm sorry, I realised I was a late replacement in both senses of the word. Um, uh, I mean, without wanting to repeat what I imagine were already some quite depressing slides of doom, having read the <laughs> brilliant full report. I mean, essentially, like, the spending review as exists is, is a fictitious document. There is no way... You know, essentially, like, it adds up because at the, the end of the forecast, then Jeremy Hunt is not going to remake the relationship between the citizen and the state. We've already seen, with the alarming slides... I assume there were alarming slides, they're always they alarming. So, okay. yeah. Um, yeah, we already see if you've sat down and looked through this and you seen the alarming slides and we're already past the point quite visibly in terms of the polls and the elections, uh, at which point the voters revolt at the standard of public services than there is presented to them. So even if somehow Rishi Sunak and Jeremy Hunt were to be re-elected, which I think is a pretty planet-sized if, um, just as Rishi Sunak, of course, had to raise taxes and break his manifesto p- pledge in this parliament, those exact same pressures would manifest themselves uh, in the next. I think in some ways the big question I think is still exactly right to talk about that historical parallel. But, of course, the big difference, which I suppose that we only know in hindsight, but the big difference is, is that the economic growth and the overall benign circumstances meant that it was much easier for a government to wait two years before turning the spending taps on. If you, you know, draw out one aspect of, of the report, um, prisons and the court system, I would say it is far from clear that that is a part of the state that can weather two years of, don't worry, we'll match the spending commitment. And I suspect just as, you know, what was that line about adult social care? You know, famine crisis repeat. We can already see that happening in universities, in local authorities. So. I think the big question is not will they have to raise taxes, but when will will they even be able to get to the end of this slightly ambitious forecast?
0: Thanks, Stephen. And you mentioned, of course, the election. I'd be really interested in your view on where public services are going to sit in the kind of election narrative. There are so many problems facing the country at the moment, the cost of living crisis, the kind of wider economic climate. A net zero and, and whether we're kind of going backwards or forwards on that, where do you think public services is going to rank when it comes to the issues that public care most about this election? Uh,
4: so in some ways, I think the public services are a bit like... Um, so I had very bad teeth as a teenager and I had to have a lot of extensive dental work done. And there's a period when, you know, you've had your wisdom teeth taken out, you can't really speak or say anything and all you can think about is the fact you can't eat, speak or say anything. And then suddenly you start to be able to eat, speak and say things again and you're suddenly aware that your mouth is a whole sort of, yeah, kind of full of pain because you've lost a lot of teeth. And in one ways the cost of living crisis is sort of like not being able to speak immediately after having had quite a lot of dental surgery. At the moment it crowds out everything else in the mind of voters unless you are directly going through the NHS Or you have um, children who are in school who suddenly, you know, something I really notice when I go out knocking on doors and, you know, bothering people and asking people what they've noticed in their local area is sort of every fifth parent will say something like, well, on Fridays, school closes at 2 p.m. But unless you are immersed in that, and actually even that person, often I've had to prompt them because the first thing they've talked about has been the cost of living. even if, which let's face it is unlikely, something miraculous would happen to the British economy, I think we would then see basically the Labour lead wouldn't change all that much, but suddenly public services would shoot up the agenda. But I think it's unlikely that they will be that much of a feature. It will just be the, the third, you know, people go, I, I can't afford stuff. Um, I'm sick of the government. They seem incompetent. And whichever public service I've just come into contact with hasn't worked, whether it's potholes or any of the other things we've talked about. But it will be an an election on the economy, I think.
0: Thanks, Stephen. Um, Nick, one of the other points that comes out really strongly in this report, but right across IFG's work, is the fact that the current government um, has been stuck in a kind of cycle of short-termism. And that's something that we see playing out in, in, in public services short-termism in terms of the kind of financial settlements that services are getting, but also short-termism in terms of the kind of policy framework that's being set by ministers who are leaving roles almost as soon as they're in them, officials who don't have depth of expertise in particular areas because they're changing every year or so. How big a problem is that That churn instability for public services and, and what can be done about it? Because this is something we've been talking about as an organisation for a long time, and yet it doesn't seem to change.
2: It's a huge problem. I think our view on public service productivity improvements, which are definitely possible, is that the biggest ones are likely to be made by frontline services uh, in response to local circumstances, uh, in particular investments, etc. But it's incredibly difficult to plan, uh, whether it's investment or your workforce or whatever, if the minister is constantly changing and every time a new minister comes in, they completely change the policy. You know, For example, uh, last year in March, we had a big schools white paper published that then led to uh, a schools bill that was then withdrawn in December of the same year. And that is just not circumstances in which frontline staff can plan and do their best. So, yeah, we think that there needs to be much greater stability in ministers uh, who tend to get shifted round, you know, at least every couple of years. You know, In education, for example, there were five secretaries of state over the course of those Eight months uh, between the white paper being published and the schools bill being um, withdrawn, but also among officials as well. And it's one of our kind of ongoing um, criticisms of the civil service that actually, if you're a civil servant and that you want to get ahead, you need to switch job at least every couple of years. And there just aren't the incentives uh, to stay in post, build up expertise, and retain that institutional. Uh, knowledge and we think if you got those things better then you would hopefully have a bit more policy stability and clearly there have been external circumstances which have made that hard particularly um, Covid but it's also been about the kind of the the politicians uh, involved and we would hope that whoever forms the new government we could have a greater measure of stability over the five years.
0: Estelle did you want to come in?
3: I, I agree with you I mean um in the Public Services Committee, we're really suffering from the change in children's minister. So we're doing a piece of work and keep uh, getting uh, different min- ministers. But to two points, I think the senior levels of the government don't look at the, um, the churn in under secretaries of state, ministers of state, parliamentary under secretaries of state. And those are the people who are working, that, that's where a lot of the, you know, the groundwork is done on policy development. And they, they just come and go without comment, even. We comment a lot on whether the Secretary of State's been there one year, two years or two minutes. I mean, in that same period, if you looked at the number of Ministers of State who were changed about within a three-month period, it would be far more frightening than that. And the second thing is, for all that, Nick Gibb's been there since, 19, whenever they, since 2010, apart from one break. I've got, I've got this thing, but this is perhaps more true of education than any other. There is continuity in policy, if you look at education. You really can make a case that from 1988 onwards, there's been a line of policy development that all all parties have actually gone through. Politicians don't want to talk about it. They don't think that's part of um, what what their job is or what will make them attractive to the public. They always want to talk about change. It's not great to stand up and make a speech, say, I want to tell you how continuous, how (laughs) how we're guaranteeing continuity. People are gonna switch off. There's not a journalist going to cover it. And that is a problem, because where there is a line of continuity, I think either, and what I'd suggest is, A, we have to accept that's important, so report it. But secondly, it is at least the conversation they could have with the workforce in the sector. You know, the conversation you want with the workforce in the sector is, can I tell you about the continuity? And the adaptation's based on that Mm -hmm. continuity, whereas the politician with the workforce wants to make the speech can I tell you about the change. And it's only a subtle difference and it may not work outside education, but I think it does within that particular sector.
2: I mean, And it is notable that schools are the only service that we think improved in performance between 2009-10 and the eve of the pandemic. And I don't think those two things are unrelated.
0: Okay, I think we've got about 20 minutes left. So I want to give some space to questions from the audience. I'm going to take them in groups of three. And can I ask you to tell me uh, your name or which organisation you're from? And can I also make a plea for uh, comments rather than questions? Okay. Qu- questions
5: rather than comments.
0: Uh, exactly. Questions <laughs> rather than comments. That could have gone very wrong. Thank you, Nick. I've one <laughs> here. <Yeah.
5: Salute> here. <laughs> uh, Chris Smith from Public Finance. Um, and for all of the panel, um, an idea that was raised during the party conferences is that uh, there is a disconnect between centre and local, mm. that Whitehall uh, sees local organisations as a delivery arm, not as a useful... Uh, set of complex organisations that actually understand their communities, uh, is that a factor in performance? On, and do you agree with that analysis?
0: Thank you. More questions? I'll take through. I think we've got one here.
6: Thank you very much for the very interesting points that were brought up. Um, I've had um, personal and professional experience in both in healthcare, education, and um, um, the prison system. I think one thing one is missing, and I think um, and the Baroness spoke about it, is the impact of culture on the um, spending. Um, I'll just use education as a, an example. I took the figures of education and did the traffic light system. And the variable that was impacting using the machine learning Uh, model. The variable that was impacting education and exclusion was poverty. And I think that translates into all the other systems. I want to just end here because I'm sure we can talk about it later and other people want to make a point. I think one of the problems, we can't just say 10 years because globally things are changing very, very fast. And what we project in 10 years may not be... um, how can I say, may not work with the global um, situation as it is. So I think, no, not what I think, what do you think about having a much more intersectional approach in policymaking and um, involving all parts of society in that? Thank you very much. Thank you very much.
0: Um, Any other questions? Otherwise, I'm going to... Thank you. One over here.
6: Thank you, Philip Pratley,
2: Leonardo. Um, the emphasis on workforce planning is quite an encouraging one. Does the panel feel that the ability the government has to understand the skills it will need in that workforce is up to the mark?
0: Thank you. Okay, so we've got a uh, centre-local disconnect, um, intersectional approach to policy-making and workforce planning, does government understand the skills it needs? Um, Stephen, I'm going to come to you first.
4: Well, I mean, on local government, I would say it's, it's a bit of both, right? In Inland... the the only—it's very clear in the reform, but the, on, the only bright spot in the government's record in the public services are what's happened in schools, where that's partly, of course, about the very long continuity, exactly as Estelle says, going all the way back to Kenneth Baker. Um, but part of that success has been um, pulling some powers from local government to the centre. To the centre, and we can argue about whether or not the DFE is. Equipped to do all of the things that the mid tier used to do, um, I think the argument is well it's, it's mixed but um, but I think over the piece right I mean just thinking about you know, stories the FTs run in the past week, we've had um, the government blocking saying it will block local government having four day week trials uh, we'll have a king speech in which they'll be clamping down on the ability of local government to set. 20 mile an hour zones. Now, mm. whatever you think about these policies, it is, mm. I would say, far from clear than what the head of government of a G7 nation during a time of geopolitical mm. uncertainty yeah. needs to be focusing on is whether or not Haringey Council is too free with 20 mile an hour zones. I mean, it, it's, 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 it's risible. Um, <laughs> and I think part of how, obviously, looking at that report, it is really clear that taxes are going to have to go up. If you look at where we sit on the OECD average, actually, in terms of the amount that central government taxes, would probably are at about the amount that you can get out of the average European voter before people start to get quite irate. If you look at what separates us from the rest of the uh, OECD average, it's that local government does much more revenue raising than... Mm-hmm. Yeah, much more revenue raising outside the UK than it does here. So I think local government is going to be a big part of how you unlock some of these public service improvements because, uh, yeah, I think a good way for Rachel Reeves to be a one-term chancellor would be for her to do much more direct tax raising. But, if, yeah, if you, if you look at Germany, France, if you look out, throughout the rest of the OECD, the missing part of the tax take is, is what happens locally, uh, and that also has to be come hand in hand with local government having more power about what it spends and not just how it raises revenue.
3: Thank you. Estelle. Yeah, I, I think I've changed my mind on the local government one and sorry, I probably have to admit I've probably changed it since I left government, which um, it's, it's a good lesson. It is really difficult because um, you devolve a lot of government then feels it's not got many levers and yet it's held accountable. So you've got to work this through. But I think I was not a great admirer of the policy of uh, mayors for, for areas, but I think they've proved to prove their, prove their worth. And I think they've shown that, not, I'm not talking about that particular model, but invest, put investment in it, do it properly, do it seriously, and you can devolve powers and resources to local areas. So I've become much more of a convert on that. And um, I would like to see a greater shift. I don't, I've not stopped worrying about differences in opportunities between different regions and different areas if we do that. And I think that's the point at which government would want to step in. So if one local area decides to do A rather than B and the other B rather than A, I think it'll be to the government that the citizen complains that they've not got both A and B, if that's not too convoluted an analogy. And I'm not sure what the answer is to that because We've not got a, um, a citizenry who's used to um, saying, well, central government for that, local government for that. We're a small island. We've not got miles and miles in between each regional area. So I think, this, I think the thing I was worried about to begin with all, all those years ago was just that notion of governments without power and local authorities didn't seem, seem as well equipped. But I think the argument's maturing. I don't think it's there yet, but I've become more and more convinced that somewhere in the future, developing around that, building on mayors, and things like that are probably an answer. I just, just one thing, that governments sometimes need to be really brave on policy. There's another thing that's in your report, one of your recommendations, and that's about early intervention. There's no one doesn't think that early intervention is right. And there's no one really that doesn't think the relationship between central and local is wrong. But how are you brave enough to make the jump is really difficult. People mean to make the jump. And there's so many reasons why they don't when they're in power. And I think that's another thing in terms of that narrative, that if you set out when you first become in power, you can move towards it. Like they are things for the future, really, forward-looking agenda items. Thank you. Nick?
2: In terms of centralisation, we, we sort of have the worst of both worlds at the moment, in that we're a pretty centralised country with a very weak centre, uh, which yeah. means we're very bad at driving through improvements. And our broad view is that you need to kind of devolve more responsibilities to kind of sub-national tiers of government, whether that's kind of at a regional level or local government, but then that central government needs to grip more effectively a smaller number of things. Um, in terms of like local revenue raising, that could be part of it, but even just greater stability for local authorities on how much funding they will get. So yeah. this was something that was in the... Brown Review, for example, so currently local authorities get a one-year settlement and often only find out a couple of months before the start of the new financial year, which makes planning incredibly difficult, uh, whereas the Brown Review suggested, um, which would be a good idea, it would of three-year settlements uh, for mm-hmm. local government. Another problem with local government is that a lot of their funding cu- comes from having to bid for competitive funding pots, yes. which, again, takes up a huge amount of effort uh, and also provides quite a lot of uncertainty. Uh, but then also, yeah, local revenue... Raising, if they had a greater proportion from that, again they would have greater um, stability. I guess the other thing pick, picking up the point about um, cross-cutting yeah. issues is that all the biggest issues facing the country are kind of cross-departmental and cut across mm-hmm. silos. And in some cases, that uh, quite a lot of cases that joining up is going to be easier to do at a more local level. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so, kind of granting okay. subnational areas more power is going to make it easier. On the workforce planning, just oh, to finish, yeah. um, we do very little of it, of any, of very, of, Well, we do very little of it, so it doesn't really matter how bad the quality is, because we just don't do it. So we've now done it for the NHS, at least. Uh, there's a question about whether that plan will be delivered uh, or not. We don't have a similar plan for adult social care. The plan for schools isn't that great. We've just recruited 20,000 additional police officers without any clear idea of what they're going to be used for, what the skills gap is going to be. So, yes, it would be great if we had kind of better... Um, forecasts of the skills that we need but frankly it would be better if government was just trying to do that type of thing in the first place because mm-hmm. currently it's not really
0: Thanks Nick, I'm good. we've got lots of questions pouring in from our online audience so I'm going to take a few of our top rated ones there, Nick I want to come to you first, um, there are lots of questions about what solutions are available that are that are not just investment and I think you mentioned um, in one of your answers that there are productivity improvements that are possible um, so perhaps you can outline a bit about you know what that looks like
2: Yeah, so just say, I think productivity improvements are possible. So for example, if you look at the quality adjusted public sector productivity improvement between uh, 2009, sorry, 1999 and 2007, it was around 5%. And if you had a 5% improvement across the nine services that we look at in Performance Tracker, that's equivalent to about 12 billion pounds a year extra, which is a, you know, a pretty sizable amount of money. in terms of the kind of where the improvements can be made, as I said, we think the, the most important thing is stability, uh, so that you can so that local uh, frontline services can make those improvements. It probably does at least up front require a bit of extra money on capital. Over time, you might be able to better balance capital spending with day-to-day spending. But frankly, if you're operating out of a crumbling building, you don't have access to an MRI machine, your computer takes 30 minutes to turn on at the start of the day. There's just not that much you can do.
0: Mm-hmm. Thank you. Stephen, I want to come to you on the question of, of funding. I mean, I think it feels like there was relative agreement across the panel that whoever the new government is, they're going to have to invest more than is currently set out. If that happens, if new funding is raised, where do you think the priorities for allocating it are?
5: Yeah.
4: It's a very really good question. Um, so I'm going to do the political economy answer first, because I think that's actually easier, right? Which is, if you are, will be a Labour government, yeah, let's do the kind of dance, the side, whoever it is, then, you know, <laughs> what, you know, what you'll want is to be able to point after four or five years to things which have visibly improved. Yep. Yeah. Um, and so the tangible things that I think actually do matter a lot more than you'd necessarily think seeing as polls, because they're things people use as heuristics for how well everything is going on, rough sleeping, potholes... Yeah. Um, and then healthcare, right? Those are the <coughs> three things which either everyone is directly touched by, or people see, mm-hmm. right? People can see that their street has large holes in it, or people sleeping rough in every doorway, and it adds to this sense that um, yeah, then the country's falling apart and nothing quite works. So those, I think, are the three things that, if I were um, you know sitting in Downing Street talking to Keir Starmer about how he would get re-elected, those are the three priorities. I think in terms of the challenges facing the country, the stuff that is causing sy- sort of systemic problems is of course the fact that we essentially now have a kind of criminal justice system which is actually still fairly good at finding people to put in the machinery of justice, but the second you start, well maybe we should take this person to court or put them in prison or anything, else, then suddenly the whole thing breaks down. Mm-hmm. Um, one of the reasons why that's got so acute is broadly speaking, every year this performance tracker has got worse and worse and worse. Uh, And essentially the only reason why we're now talking about prisons outside of of gatherings like this one is because it's moved from being a thing that concerns liberal-minded people who quite rightly were upset when we see more prison violence, more overcrowding, to a problem that upsets most voters, which is then suddenly you actually just can't put people in prison. Uh, So I think basically the core things are criminal justice. The NHS again, and then broadly, uh, just to add a final workforce point. Um, as the report shows, one sort of glimmer of light is that per pupil fund, yeah, the number of pupils is falling, which of course does mm-hmm. create savings in the education budget. But um, just a thought for you about teaching it is now essentially one of a handful of graduate jobs where you never ever get to work from home. Oh, yeah. uh, and uh, sorry, the relative pay of mm-hmm. teachers is going to have to go up quite a bit to reflect that reality. The only, the only friends I have who can't work from home are people who work for work as teachers, people who work in hospitals, and people who work in some but not all of the big banks. Now, there's obviously quite a big financial difference between the remuneration there. But there isn't, to be in the nicest possible way to my friends who work in big banks, some of whom are very, very dear to me, there isn't a big difference in terms of their qualification, intelligence levels, or ability to do any of those jobs. So that is going to be another big pressure. It's just dealing with the way that work has changed for everyone, other than a handful of public service. And it's notable that
2: most teachers who leave the profession leave to jobs with lower pay but much greater flexibility. Mm, Really, predominantly
0: female workforce as well. Yeah. Mm Yeah. Estelle, I want to ask you um, the question on allocation too. What do you think the priorities are? But I also wanted to, our top rated audience question online is um, whether the panel worries about the future viability of local government and the people who are relying on the services that local government provides. Because of the strength of local
3: government. Yes, yes yeah. I do. I do. Um, I mean, I do some work in Birmingham. And that's where my constituency was. And, the, you know, the people know it's, but it's, it's really difficult. It, there's a huge local authority not able to deliver mm. basic services. And I think... I do worry about that because apart from well schools and health, but the poverty thing and the housing thing and the neighbourhood and the the social services, the children's care, they predominantly go through local authorities, and um, they just are not the resources there. And I worry also I talk about churn. I'm not seeing the statistics. I suspect the churn in uh, local government officers, especially mm-hmm. at the delivery and the social worker end, is even greater than it is in ministers at central government. Yeah. So I think, it is a, I think it is a real problem. Also, there's something about it, I can't quite find the word, you have this sort of lack of investment in capital. We've all seen what waiting rooms are like at local authorities when you go for local authority mm-hmm. services. The, the neighbourhood office, where you go, try and get the hole in the roof mended, where you go because you're worried about your child's not, not good enough to feed them. They're never pleasant places where you're made to feel welcome and there's enough staff to see to, see to you. And it's that draining away of people's energy. Mm. And that's not the fault of local government, certainly not the fault of local government officers, but the whole context in which you are poor and needy and go to a local authority to get their services because they will help you drains the energy out of those people who need to go and ask the help. And sometimes there's got to be an injection of energy into that. I think what you said is absolutely right about making a difference where it can be seen because it just gives people a bit of hope. It's not enough, but it's sufficient to get you through that first stage of reform. So I do worry, yes. Thanks for Nick.
2: Um, On local government, we've seen um, more Section 114 notices, which is the kind of equivalent of a a local authority saying we don't have any more money uh, anymore uh, in the last three years than we had in the previous three decades. Now pretty much all of those cases are cases where those local authorities have made uh, pretty dodgy commercial uh, investments and are now in a huge level of debt. However, the fact that they felt that they needed to make those investments is symptomatic of the wider pressures, and a lot of local authorities that have been very prudent are now uh, raising concerns that they too will have to issue section 114 notices. And that's because Since 2010, there have been substantial cuts to central government grants to local authorities. That's been partly offset by increases in council taxes and charges, but it's still a 10% uh, real terms cut in local government spending power. Whilst at the same time, there's been a big increase uh, in demand for both adult social care and children's social care. And local authorities have partly squared that circle by uh, cutting down what we call neighbourhood services, which is things like libraries, uh, children's centres and public health but there's really not much more that you can squeeze there. And a lot of those services are the, are the quite visible services um, that are really going to matter to people and are, the, are going to drive people's voting.
0: Thanks, Nick. Right, we've got a few minutes left. I can probably take one or two more questions from the audience in the room, if you have them. Um, is there anything you want to ask our panel? we yes, have got one here.
5: Uh, Dennis van Micklen, um, RSA. Um, trouble is, looking at in the past and saying, you know, comparing the past with the present, it can be misleading. This is the biggest crisis we've ever had since uh, the Second World War, people talk about, even maybe the 70s, you might be saying. Uh, sometimes it's easy to blame government, but government isn't always a problem. Sometimes it's the people themselves. Sometimes we have to look at health of the people if you look at Europe, they do quite well on health issues because they actually have quite a high standard of good health. Japan, you know, even China, even Asia, generally. So maybe we should sometimes look close to home. We could actually help, help ourselves a little bit better in the country. And think about this. Obesity, for example, is mushroom. You know, it's just nonsense. It shouldn't be that way. Uh, children going around killing them, their contemporaries in the street it's just a kind of crazy situation somehow maybe families are broken down You know, maybe we'll have a look at families themselves maybe we should take the emphasis away from government a little bit You know, give them a little bit of relief because I'm sure they try uh, maybe they could have tried harder in Covid but... so I'm just wondering do you think perhaps we should take a wider perspective a societal perspective rather than just a governmental all the time
0: thank you So, um, a question about the kind of limits, uh, are there limits to kind of government's role in some of these challenges? Then I want to take one more from online, which is what can we learn from from others? Uh, Nick, you highlighted in the presentation the fact that our capital investment compared to lots of overseas comparators has been been lower. What can we learn from countries who are doing better than us? Um, Let's go in this order. So, Nick, I'll start with you.
2: Um, So, just on the kind of the limits. So, I mean, you are right that public health tends to be slightly better in some of the kind of uh, wealthy western European nations there are obviously a wide range of factors that uh, impact on that but quite a lot of those are government driven uh, as well you know in terms of uh, levels of benefits for example which are less generous uh, in the UK than in other countries and we generally have kind of uh, wider disparities uh, in income here and in other countries, all of which has an impact on health issues. I mean, it's also just the case that although our overall health spending is now broadly comparable to European, that's only a quite recent uh, post COVID thing. And that historically over a number of decades, we've spent less than other countries like uh, France and Germany and the, the Netherlands, etc. So clearly it's complicated. The kind of the outcomes are, you know, emergent properties of complex systems, but, and it's hard to tell the direct route by which government has an impact, but it can quite clearly have a, a big impact uh, on those factors. Uh, In terms of capital spending, It's a really good question, uh, and actually one that we are looking to address uh, in a new piece of research, but we have a series of problems. We don't budget very much. We then consistently underspend those capital budgets. We frequently raid those capital budgets to cover shortfalls in day-to-day spending. Uh, The capital budgets are volatile, and there are also issues about the kind of skills and the capabilities of those who are making the decisions. So I think there's probably quite a lot that can be done at each of those stages in order to improve our capital spending.
3: Thanks, Nick. Estelle? Yeah, it must be right that, you know, some responsibility is with individuals or families or or beyond government. And um, some people need more support to be able to do that as well as they need to do. And I know in schools, lots of you all know this, lots of teachers and teachers will work as much with families Mm -hmm. so that it can be a joint endeavour to raise standards or to get focused or to achieve things. it's, it's not that, that's not as easy for politicians to say as, I, as, as I've just said it here. So I, th- I do think you have to be careful that it's not shifting blame. Mm-hmm. But um, I'm absolutely certain that everybody's got a, got a part to play and um, helping everybody to be in a position where they can do for themselves and their families what will help them is, I think, something that government can help with. So it's the nature of the partnership as much as anything. And I'll leave just Nick's comments on the, <laughs> the finance bit there.
0: Thank you, and Stephen, you get the final word.
4: uh, What I would say is that it's pretty clear that the British state is not excessively large by any global standard. I would also be wary of taking figures about health, particularly from countries like China, at face value. If you look at something like life expectancy, which is, I think, a very useful international comparator, because it's basically really hard to fudge it and there isn't any cultural (laughs) difference about whether or not someone is alive or dead. yeah, actually, the UK spits out about the, uh, the, about the OECD average. Um, I think, look, the, the lesson is, ultimately, if you, if you look at the, yeah, not just this year's re- review, but if you look at, look at this, this review and you look at the chance of public spending, there is a pretty obvious correlation, right? There are also equally, fairly obviously, areas of the state. I mean, actually, crime is down loads. But there are, fairly, you know, there are equally, fairly obviously, areas of the state where the solution is not more money, it is either some form of reform or it's some kind of societal level behaviour change. But ultimately, we, we did start this decade with a period of quite severe public, yeah. sec, public spending retrenchment. right? We just did. Um, and I think it's, it is far from clear that there is any evidence that the UK's problems such as they are can be solved through more of what we've had, we had in that period. There are certainly some things that the state stopped doing in that period, which I think you can argue that they shouldn't start doing again. But I think it's very hard to argue uh, with with these charts and with this with this report.
0: Thank you very much, Stephen. Okay, we're at half past. So I'm going to have to um, draw this to a close. Um, thank you again to Sipfa um, for being our partner on the Performance Tracker project. Uh, Thank you very much to all our panel members, particularly you, Stephen, for stepping in at the the last moment for us. Um, And thank you to um, you guys, the audience, both in person and online, for taking part and asking a great set of questions. If you haven't already, I would really encourage everybody in the room and online to read Performance Tracker. It is an incredibly powerful and precise analysis of what is happening right now in our public services, and even if they come below the cost of living, these are going to be issues that everybody is thinking about in the year ahead. Um, Thank you very much, everyone.